I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, can I help you find something? Librarians specialize in helping you find what you were looking for and sometimes what you didn't know you were looking for. Thank you for joining me as I talk to my guests about all things library, including the books inside them. I'm Julie Chavez, and this is Ask a Librarian. Gregory Maguire is the author of the incredibly popular books in the Wicked Years series, including Wicked, The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West, which inspired the musical. He is also the author of several books for children, including What the Dickens, a New York Times bestseller, and Egg and Spoon, a New York Times book review notable children's book of the year. Gregory Maguire lives outside Boston. Here is our conversation. Hello, Gregory. Thanks for being with me today. Hi, Julie. I'm so glad to be here and to see you and to make a connection across the continent as as this technology allows us to do. It's so true. It is miraculous. We take it for granted every day. It's just such an everyday miracle. Well, I was so looking forward to talking to you because I've been a fan of yours for a number of years. I read Wicked before it was turned into the musical and loved the series And then I did enjoy the musical as well, but I am really enjoying your most recent work. And I'm excited to talk to you today about Cress Watercress and about what's happening for you now. Well, I'm delighted to talk about about anything and everything, including Cress Watercress, which for me is a real real surprise and, and a delight, I have to say. Well, I finished it just recently and... I marked up so many pages in the book. And what was so fascinating to me is I read your interview with Melissa Taylor, and she pointed out the same line I had about the moon looking like a lumpy clementine. And I had marked it, and I thought, that's fascinating. I had a question for you around that, and I will also link to that interview because I thought you had just tremendous insights, and it made me laugh out loud, and anytime someone can make me laugh, I love it. But I was going to ask you, Two things. Number one, I'd love to hear kind of the origin story for Cress Watercress. And then I'd love to hear about your revision. Because when I read about, when I was reading some of these lines, I thought, does this just come like out of the can for him just like that? Or do you do a lot of revision around specific word choice? So those are two separate questions. And now I've made it complicated for you. So, but, you please. know, I, I love getting lost in the welter of, of syntactical complications. So, Fantastic. Uh, I will, I'll start with the first one and I'll try okay. to remember the second one. And if I, by the time I finish my answer to the first question, I don't remember, you can just repose it. Perfect. Uh, the question about origin stories for yes. press is, is a good one. And it's a different origin than most of my stories. Like most origin stories for stories, I feel, there has to be a mother and a father, mm. which is to say you have to have two impulses that converge. 
it isn't enough to have, for me anyway, it yes. isn't enough just to have one impulse. Like I might see a moon coming over horizon and say to myself, the moon, that moon looks like a clementine and a lumpy clementine and a string bag of clouds and say, oh, I see a whole world and a whole story around that. No, I don't. I just see an observation. It's just an observation. And I, I do tend to try to parse my life in written and spoken language. So now I'm, now I'm actually answering both questions. At the same this time. is perfect. But, Please. <laughs> but I, but you know, I've never, until you asked the question, I've never really suggested to myself this answer. It's coming to me as I'm speaking mm-hmm. about the fact that there needs to be at least two progenitors. Now, in, in a messy kind of narrative sex, there can be lots of progenitors. Of the story. <laughs> yes. but I don't think there can be one. Parthenogenesis for a story is really rare. I think you need two impulses, and sometimes they have to be a little bit contrary. But it's the material working together in a kind of a friction, two separate questions or two separate you know, a memory and a question or a concern and an irritation or an observation and a hesitation. Well, who knows what they are? But there has to be something that's providing a little, a, a little grit in order for a story to get started, just like a baby. You know, there has to be some friction. And so, <laughs> Indeed. so what, what, I, what I realize as you ask the question mm-hmm. is that I, the, the truth, one of the, one of the two pieces one of the parents of this story, is the fact that about three years ago, I was at a conference of children's book writers where I serve on the board a little bit. And I got chatty with somebody else who serves on the board, a wonderful person. I'm not going to say his name, but he's a wonderful artist of books for young kids. Mm-hmm. And you would know his work, I'm sure, if I said it. But, but I'm not going to say it because he didn't, he didn't end up doing the book. So. But we were talking and he was showing me some of his work. And I said, really, rather nervily, if not rather rudely, I said, you need better texts. I mean, your work, your work is top drawer, classic stuff, like, you know, the, like uh, Garth Williams, who did Charlotte's Web, or like E.H. Yes. Shepard, who did The Pooh. Some people just have a classic look. And your, your, your work is really memorable and classic. But I think the stories you choose to illustrate don't serve it well. You need prose that's just as strong as your work. And he said, you know, uh, a happily married man, I might add, he, he, you know, he said kind of saucy, well, are you proposing something? And, <laughs> and I said, no, I'm, I'm not, because I don't write stories about animals, and he loves to draw animals, you know. Uh, and I said, I don't write stories about animals. Wish I did, but I don't. I mean, it's not, not my thing. Right. But good luck. You know, good luck. And, uh, and if, I ever get, if I ever get an idea about it for an animal story, I'll let you know, because you'd be my top choice for an illustrator. So I got in the car to go back home from this conference. And did I think about animal stories? No, I did not. The second parent got in the car with me. Okay. And the parent was this idea. I knew a young person who was at the time maybe 16, let's say, who was having a hard year. Mm. Many 16-year-olds have hard years. In fact, most 16, in fact, all 16-year-olds have hard years. I, I would agree. And I was thinking about this child and I was thinking, I wish there were something I could do to be consoling, but there isn't. If this were a different kind of child, if this were a child who was, for instance, say, a reader, I might go to my library and and find a book to give for consolation. Not, mind you, as bibliotherapy. 
They don't really mm. believe in bibliotherapy. Like, oh, you fell down and broke your skin of your knee. Here's a book called, you know, The Broken Knee, you know. and Or yes. um, the, the bibliotherapy was a really big thing when I came into the field in the 70s and early 80s, where, you know, if you're getting a divorce, go to the library and get a book about a kid whose parents are getting divorced and, you know, mm-hmm. you can get your kid and then it will all be right. Uh, right. And, oh. and, and yes, books can console. Yes, they can they can challenge and they can help and they can make you feel less alone, but they can't fix the problem. They can just give you some solidarity. So I was thinking for this child, thinking even, you know, what I would want to say to this child, I don't think exists in any book that I know. And in any case, this child wouldn't read this book because this child's not a reader. Some children are, some aren't. Mm -hmm. So I'm that that's the only that's the only skill I have is to know books and to think about the power of story as constellations and challenges and, and joys and therapies and everything else. So then I thought, okay, Gregory, well, there's nothing you can do, you know, in, in that along that line right. to resolve this issue. But if this child who on the sofa, could you what if there was a book that you could have given then? What you really want and what I use for myself when I'm in a troubled moment is I rely on what I have read. Mm. I, I call up poetry. I call up bits of, of the Gospels. I call up the Psalms. If I'm, if I'm in a, a panic, if I'm in a sad moment, I rely on the words of what I have read and, and collected in my heart as part yes. of my portfolio. And so what you want to do, I said, is you really want to have get, you want to have had the chance to give this child something 10 years ago. Right. Can't do it now. Right. But 10 years ago, what would you have done? And I said to myself, I would have tried to find a story that said to a child that the life of feelings is not a case of encountering one feeling and surviving it. But really, the important thing to learn is that feelings are an endless cycle and you don't just have them once and then read a book about it and survive. What you do is you have to learn about the life cycle of, of, of emotions. And that's something I don't think people talk about to kids. I had to learn it myself. That when I, when I the first person I knew who died and I suffered grief, I, I finally came out of it. And I thought, well, good, I've got that under my belt. And, you know, next yes. time somebody died, I thought, oh, I didn't know I had to go through that again. You know, this mm. is something I think that's actually rather basic and rather important. But I'm not sure that... As a, as a Western culture, we even kind of consider it very much. Yes. So I thought that's what I would like. That's what I would like this child to have learned 10 years ago. And so why should I stop myself from trying to give that to somebody else? Mm-hmm. And at that point, I had two parents. I had a motivation for a story. And then, you know, the, the what about fairy animals kind of, raised his head from the back seat and said, you know, I did actually hop in the back of the car and I'm here, I'm listening to this. <laughs> and I think, but, well, that's it. I could write a story about child animal with a, a roller coaster of an, of, of an emotional life in which the emotions are complicated. How one can feel happy when one is feeling sad, how one can be angry and still notice that the world is beautiful. I mean, how does that work? I, I don't even know that now, but... It's true. So I thought, that's what I want to do. 
that's what I want to do. And it was very quick. It was very quick work. Once the moment of conception had happened, it was very quick work <laughs> to think I will write about a defenseless animal, a small defenseless furry animal. And a rabbit made a good choice because rabbits, the only defenses rabbits have really are that they can run fast and they can breed fast. You know, that's it. They have, you know, they can't attack with their teeth or their claws. Right. They can't fly and they can't, they can't really dig. Not really. And so that's, that's, you know, so they're pretty defenseless and they're pretty easy to catch, frankly, rabbits. Um, Yeah. They don't last long in the wild. (laughs) So that was, that was, I thought, okay, I'm going to write about a family and I'm going to write about a little girl rabbit and they're going to, and I'll just get them started on some journey and see what happens to them. And so now I'm folding into your next question, which is about, about revision. Mm -hmm. I would say and I don't, I don't mean in any way to adjust the tin pie plate halo above my sanctified head. <laughs> but I would say that after 45 years of being a professional writer, that I write, I, I, so I've learned to trust my voice. I've learned mm-hmm. to trust my tone. And I don't start until I'm ready. It's, there's a little, it's, like, it's like, I don't know if, if your mother ever made pot roast in one of those those kettles where the the lid had a lock on and there was a steam valve coming up the top. Oh, you know. yes. Like an instant pot or a crock pot. Yeah. Look, yes. Only even only it was even more. And the worry. The, 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 oh, the, the pressure cooker. Pressure cooker. That's yes. it. That's right. And of course, you were always afraid it was going to explode. And yeah. And, and the shards of iron were going to scar all nine people in the house, no matter what room you happened to be in. Totally. Um, Death by shrapnel and pot roast. Yes. <laughs> but oh, it was good. Um, so I, I know myself well enough to know this is my method of working. I yeah. get my idea. And then I let it I let it build up steam. I let it build up pressure. And it's, that's not to say that I plot much. I okay. really, I, I rely on my own instinct for... What, what, what one might call narrative lust. I rely on my own narrative lust for my imagination to tell me what's next. Mm-hmm. When somebody knew, I didn't work out how many characters were going to be in the book. When I got bored with the character, suddenly a new one showed up. And it, you know, at the same rate that I would imagine a reader would wish, oh, I hope, you know, I hope there's somebody else here. Right. Um, you know, so, and the same is true. And this is the final part of this answer. Yeah. This is why I can never be an NPR correspondent because I can't give short answers. The same is true in, in terms of not just the plot, but the language, because that's really what you asked about. How, mm-hmm. how does your language come out sounding so much like you and so much like what this book needs? And I would yes. say that doesn't always happen, but the older I get and the closer I get to retirement, the more I feel confident that the way that I see and say things is my way. And I'm going to use it. And, and it's a little, I wouldn't say it's fey, but it's purposely a little arresting and a little off step. And it bounces back and forth between points of comedy and surprise and I hope a little beauty, but not too much. So that it's an unstable experience to read even a page is unstable because it goes from this it lurches from this to that to that which is how life sort of appeals to us or appears to us i mean and appeals to us usually so that doesn't that doesn't make any young writer feel particularly happy (laughs) 
Uh, but it does say you can get there because I, 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 I worked harder and my prose was more labored, I think, when I was younger because I wanted to be stylish and I wanted people to notice. And now I just want to be myself and that is who I am. So, so it, it is not very hard work once I have decided, okay, I can't stand the pressure anymore. I'm going to write this book. And I wrote the book in about four weeks. Okay. And, and uh, for an adult novel, it usually takes seven to ten weeks. And for, the, for a book like children's book like that, about four weeks. And very steady pace, a certain number of words or pages a day. Okay. From the first page to the last page. And then it's done. And I look back, and there wasn't a whole lot of revision in this book. It pretty much came out. It didn't come out exactly as you see it. Um, sure. I, kind of, I shortened a couple of scenes, and I, I do tend to overwrite, um, like most writers, the first draft, in order partly to convince myself I remember where I am. You know, you're here, and and I put, you know, I line up everybody on the page who's yes. in the scene, and then later on I can say, we remember that the skunk is there. We don't have to mention her every every second paragraph, you know. So. <laughs> so that's the end of that. So your first question, I've taken up three quarters of your time by answering the first question. I'm sorry. <laughs> I couldn't be more delighted because what's fascinating is listening to you. I was thinking you were expressing so many of the emotions I had reading the book. Because oh, really? I, yes, I kept thinking, one of my favorite things about the way you write is what you expressed earlier about the tension. I feel like when I read your writing, it is true to life. And mm-hmm. your characters feel true to life because they are somewhat unpredictable and layered. And you see relationships between them that are both both healthy and also sort of detrimental to them. I mean, just yeah. it's yeah. <laughs> there's so much of that. Uh-huh. And it's so nuanced without ever feeling, like you said, too labored, right? It never feels like you've sat there and really hammered it too much. And so, yeah, that was really fascinating to hear. I love what you said about the ideas in the car, too. That's a really good tip just for writers, kind of having that faith that I can put you in the back of the car and then... When it's time, when you need yeah. me to stop and you need to go to the bathroom, then we'll pull off the interstate and do it. Exactly. And, you know, I, I never had that. I never had that apprehension until you asked the question. I never thought about that. I do. I had thought about the idea about the pressure cookers before. And, yeah. I do, you know, for instance, when people have asked me about how to come up with the idea of Wicked, I, I'm aware that there were a number of different impulses. But I never really thought about the need for friction between impulses as as a, as a necessary um, not a lubricant, but a necessary gesture, you know, for a well, story idea. It's, yes. And I, you know, I had talked a lot about that after the pandemic with the kids going back to school. What was fascinating was to see that they need social friction. They need that resistance that they encounter with other kids, conflict and conversations and uncomfortable moments. Without that, it it's not, it's not good for them. So it was really interesting to see. And just hearing you say that, like we need that friction, though we all say that we don't want it or like it, right? Because we kind of have this vision of peace. And I think that also speaks to what you were saying about the complicated, the cycle of emotion. I think that is so profound and true because we live, and you mentioned it, in a Western culture, we love upward mobility. Like, oh, hey, yeah. look at me knocking down all these obstacles and these emotions, and now I'm a pro. Congratulations Absolutely. to me. And we also live in a, in a really dangerously 
binary century. And yes. I'm not talking politics, although certainly in politics. But we really only believe there are two there are two places on the switch. It's not a rotary dial. It's just two places. It's on or off. You're in or you're out. And I'm more the older I get, the more aware of that I am, including in my own thinking. And, and I try to resist it. I say, no, get a rheostat for your emotions, Gregory. Get a rheostat for your apprehensions. And don't stop trying to fine-tune the reality of subtlety and yes. ambiguity and the fact that you're not you're not done figuring this out, honey. <laughs> you're not going to be done. Either. But you're yes. going to keep trying. You're going to keep trying. Now, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the, the birth story. So that's the gestation story. I wrote the book. Yes. And then, then when it came out, I mean, when I was finished with it, I sent it to the illustrator that I had. Oh, the original. Yeah, the original illustrator. Back of the car illustrator. Absolutely. Okay. And I said, well, you know what? On the way home from that conference, I got a story idea. Yeah. And I wrote it. What do you think? And he read it and he said, I love it. I'm going to throw everything aside and do it. And then I sent it to my editor. Mm-hmm. And my editor said, I, I know his work. I admire his work. He's not the right one for this book. Okay. And I had to then make a decision what to do. Because as you you may know, do you, do you publish? Do you write? I'm writing a memoir right now and slowly good. working on a children's book. But yes, good, continue. Good, good. Well, you, you know, having a good editing house is something that you don't throw over lightly. Even if you have a reputation and you have a good sales record and all, cultivating your your status at a good house especially is very important. And Candlewick Press, that does my children's books, is a very fine house indeed. Mm -hmm. So when my editor said, you know, I appreciate your birth, the the, the gestation story, conception story, but I don't think he's right. And I want to propose somebody else. And I had to go back to this illustrator and say, I'm in a pickle and I don't know what to do. Should I walk away or should we take this book to another publisher? Since you were part of its origin story, I feel that it's only honorable to ask you if you want me to do that. Absolutely. And he wrote back and said, Gregory, I've been in this business not as long as you, but long enough to know your publisher, he really has your first, has your back. And your mm. is your first obligation. And I'm I'm happy to have been part of the origin for this story. But if it should be somebody else, go ahead, you know, go with it. And and don't leave your publisher on my account. Because the same thing could happen after one book, we might want to do a second book and the publisher might say, no, this isn't right. You know, life is too short. Stay with your house. And if something is there for us sometime in the future, it will be. And if not, no, no, hard, no hard feeling. So which was very, very generous of him. And my publisher then came up with David Litchfield, the illustrator of Crest Watercress, whom I had not heard of before. That's bad, bad on me. But he provided a portfolio of illustrations. I should, t- I should say to those people who haven't seen the book that this is a very unusual book in that there are full-color illustrations every four or six pages for 230 pages. It is one of the most profusely illustrated chapter books in full color that I've ever seen. It's like, yes. you know, and he's, and they're beautiful. About five of them, uh, uh, you know, I, I fall down on the floor in front of. Oh. Know, like the fox and snow and the bear with the horns on his head in the forest. It's just, I can't believe how strong they are. 
I, just I actually know they're stunning. I showed them to, I was at school and I was finishing up reading and yeah. I was showing them to some of the fifth graders. I said, look at this. Yeah. I mean, it's just tremendous art yeah. that is in there. And it really is. I also like, you're right, every few pages, but I like the different spreads of the illustrations. Absolutely. Yes. Isn't that interesting? There, there are double page spreads. There's no, I don't think there's any page that's a full page double spread with no text on it bleeding out off both pages. But there are double page banner spreads, top and bottom. There are oval insets. There are square insets. There are rectangulars along the side of the page. There are full pages and a pretty wide range color palette, both warm and cold from mm, ice yes. and to a lot of reds and oranges and sunny yellows. And what my, my thought when I first saw them was, it's as if David Litchfield, who lives in England, has gone into an old, like, neo-Gothic 19th century church that's been deconsecrated and has knocked out some of the stained glass windows and has taken them to his kitchen. He has not used the pressure cooker. He's taken out the Cuisinart. And he's, pre- he's put the glass in the Cuisinart and pressed pulse maybe four times. Yes. So they're just, they're like stained glass. They're the color, I don't know how he does it. The light seems to shine through the page. You are so right. They are lit from within. Yeah. Those illustrations are so beautiful. And it feels like you were saying, you know, it's a very illustrated chapter book, but it really does because the illustrations are so integrated and so numerous. It yeah. really does have that richness of a picture book where you feel the connection. I mean, the, the interplay between your words and his illustrations really is perfection. Well, here's, here's a good, here's a very a lovely thing about the illustrations. The book is dedicated to two little girls that I know. I don't know them very well, but I know their parents and, uh, their mother was uh, a sort of office assistant of mine you know, years before she got married. Mm-hmm. And so I don't see them very often, but I adore them all. And the little girls are five and eight. So I didn't, I told the mother, but I didn't tell the girls about the book. And I mailed them two books when it was published. And the mother started reading the story to them in the bathtub every night, one chapter a night, 38 nights of baths. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he said, you know, the once or twice for the five-year-old, it was a little bit on the edge of being too scary. So she made a, a, a game. The girls always wanted her to keep going. She said, no, just one chapter a night, one chapter a night. Yeah. And I, I, you'll save this next chapter for next night. But she let them look at the next picture. Oh, from the chapter okay. Head. Yes. So they think about it. Yep. And also so that they could know that whatever might be scaring them, was okay by the next chapter. They wouldn't know necessarily how it was okay, but they could be, you know, they didn't have to go to bed scared or, or alarmed or anything. Oh. I love that. That's actually Isn't a really that, good is tip. that a great idea? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I thought that's so smart. Yeah, enough comfort, but not revealing too much. That's, yeah, because yeah. we all kind of want that, the right amount of suspense in our lives and <laughs> right. in our books. Right, <laughs> right? exactly, yeah. exactly. Right. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I love that one of my favorite lines, I mean, I marked a ton in here, but one of them I loved was, today might not be good, but it might be good enough. Oh. <laughs> when Chris yeah. is talking to Frick. Yeah, yeah. And, and I tried to make a real set of patterns of, perceptions and use them in different modes and different tones because when you learn something you actually take it out and and it's useful to you at you know sometimes it's useful because you're happy sometimes it's useful because you're not happy you know but it's still something you need to carry with Mm -hmm. you and so I tried to I tried to do that as a a conscious uh, gesture including so you know almost every joke that I make gets turned on its head at some point you know, later on in this, in the story, like make a note of it, make, make a note of it. Oh, that has about three different uses in the story. And yes. uh, yeah, I um, love to make a note of it. I'm going to start using that with my teenagers. Actually, <laughs> I was thinking this is a yeah. great thing to say. Make a note of it. Yeah. <laughs> make a note of it. <laughs> yeah. Especially when they have unsolicited feedback for me as their delightful mother. Yes. Right, right, right. Make a note of it. Right, right. Thumbs up. Right. <laughs> Make a note of it. Yeah. Well, I I mean, I can't say enough good things about the book. It's so profound, but it's it's accessible. And yeah. I think for kids, so I think you succeeded in writing it for the six-year-old that you were envisioning. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Julie, because it's, it's a book that can, you know, when people ask me from Wicked on down, you know, who are your books for? It's like, your, your your book after Alice, which was published by an adult house, is 220 pages and has generous letting. And your book, Egg and Spoon, which was published by a children's house, is 410 pages with with less generous. Right. Who do you write for? And, <laughs> and I've come around after the last 15 years, I've come around to saying, you know what? I write for people who like to read Gregory Maguire books. They can figure out who they are. And I don't think there's much difference. I mean, yes... Uh, there are scenes in Wicked and its sequels and in my adult books where if you have the right background experience in life, you can tell, oh, this is sex or this is about God or this is political. Yes. Uh, and if you don't have it, like most, re- you know, it's going to yeah. probably mostly go over your head. And I definitely use a different syntax and a wider vocabulary when I'm writing for adults. But in general, I try to bring my same sensibility about storytelling to to any audience. And I say, you, you can sort yourselves out. Well, you know, what Crest Watercrest is not an unsuitable book for adults to read for humor and consolation. And they can read it aloud to kids. They can give it to kids to read kids from five. uh, I'd say younger than five is probably too complicated a story. Sure. uh, To, uh, you know, kids can read it as a chapter book for themselves in late grade school or middle school. Or maybe, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to find high schoolers taking it up the way 
when we were kids, we read The Little Prince and we thought it was profound. We read Charlotte's Web, even in 11th grade and 12th grade, because we had loved it and we knew it had a lot to say. And we loved rereading it. So I hope Crest Watercrest becomes that kind of a book where uh, people can read it just because they feel like reading it or rereading it. I think it will. I think it really has that sort of feel to it and also that sort of wisdom. Because you're right, we read for consolation, but so many times we have to do that ahead of time because when we're reading, then when it's there, then it's the wisdom we need in the moment. Because especially when things are hard, it can be challenging to read. Okay. Because, yeah. You're quite right. And you asked me to come supplied with a question. Yes. Let's hear it. I am now, this this, this feeds into my question. What do you go back to reread when you need either to challenge yourself again or to remind yourself what you think is important? Is there one thing that comes to your mind that's like, oh, this is the book I've gone back to the most often in my life as something, or maybe you don't, maybe you're not the kind of person who does that, but that's my question. I love that question. Thank you. I think that I'm not a huge rereader. I have a pretty good memory, so I will store up lines, and I definitely store up kind of the feelings of books. Uh So Uh I think in the moment, I usually, well, for writing, I will say there is one. I go back to Stephen King's on writing all the time. Oh, really? Oh, okay. I I read that book constantly. Really? (laughs) Yeah. I've never never read it. And uh, so I'm glad to hear you say that. Uh, Maybe I'll go, I'll go get a copy on the way home. It's so, it's such a good book because I love, it's, you know, the story of his writing and there are some tips in there for writers to be sure. But for me, the more, the more lasting part of the story is his process of getting sober. Oh, really? Yes. He had a variety of addictions. He talked about writing, I think it was Cujo and not really remembering most of that and talking about how he went from being a writer who had those crutches and those addictions to then going back. And I I think his, I am a classic overwriter when you said you tend to overwrite. I mean, any editors like Julie, we get it. So (laughs) I think reading his sentences is always so helpful for me because they're so propulsive. They're just tight and fast. And I really appreciate that. So yeah, that's probably one I go to for writing. And then in general, you know, you mentioned the Psalms and I definitely have passages, biblical passages that are just stored up in my mind. And then I love Marisa de los Santos is a, she had a poetry degree, but she's written a number of books and there are some lines from her books that will never leave me. So oh, wow. I, I think I store them. She wrote the, there's a series or two that go together. The first one is love walked in and then belong to me. Uh-huh. And then she also wrote one called I'll be your blue sky. And I'd give anything, I think it's the most recent one. But yeah, she just, she wrote, and she wrote about motherhood. One of them was about motherhood. And I think that really stayed for me. So yeah, yeah. I think I collect, I think I'm a collector that way, the lines. And I yeah. just sort of keep the ones that, that mean most. But that, that's such a, I am now going to think about that though, when I'm reading, because I never thought of it as storing up comfort yeah. for when I'll need it. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you one quick question about Wicked when you were talking sure. about, you know, the difference between the book or the writing of the book. And like you were saying that there are scenes in Wicked, the book that right. are not in the musical, obviously. Right. 
And right. some of it, I felt like, and you're saying a lot of that would go over someone's head and I couldn't agree more. How did that work? Did you have to, I mean, did you sell the rights and ride off into the sunset? Were you part of the process for? That's a good question. Um, okay. I actually, due to a, a, a lucky set of circumstances, I owned the rights to the book whole and entire. Instead of sharing them with the publisher, I actually retained them. Okay. Um, And that doesn't usually happen, and that was just, that was very lucky. Yeah. So when the time came to make the decision about whether or not it should be sold to to a Hollywood studio, Mm -hmm. I initially said yes, but the project wasn't going to be uh, greenlit because Wicked came out, Wicked sort of anticipated the return of big literary fantasy like Game of Thrones and Harry Potter and Philip Pullman. Wicked yes. Was, Wicked was ahead of the pack by about a year and a half. Yes. I need to get you a T-shirt that said, like, <laughs> I was first. Yeah, right. Somebody, somebody, when, when Wicked, the musical came out, people said, well, it's definitely riding on the coattails of Harry Potter. And I said, excuse me, you know. Yeah. No. I have a quibble with that. Excuse me, kind (laughs) sir. Yeah. But the thing is, when the idea for it to be a play came up, it was proposed to me that a movie, should it ever be greenlit, would net me a sizable amount of money for the sale of the rights. Okay. And I had three adopted children at the time, all under the age of six. And the life of a freelance writer is not a steady one. So I really wanted it to be a movie. I wanted one big pot of gold and then I would buy my house and then not really, we'd we'd live like church mice for the rest of our lives. Of course. In your beautiful house. Yes. That that at least, it might not even be that beautiful, but at least I would own it, not the bank. Um, Amen. And then when the play idea came up, because the movie had kind of stalled and Hollywood didn't really want to bankroll $100 million for a fantasy film two years before Peter Jackson's first Lord of the Rings came out and proved it could be done. Right. You know, they were skittish. Yes. And, and a couple of years before Harry Potter came out in the first film. So it was kind of stalled, and I was thinking, I'm never going to get any money from this. It's too bad. Right. And then the idea of the play came up, and the director, the producer of the movie actually said, you might want to consider letting Universal Studios produce it as a play instead of a movie. The, the Instead of a seven-figure purchase price, it'll be a low five figures. Pretty low five Okay, okay. But, and the chances of it being successful are not great. But I will tell you, those plays that are successful do well. You know, most don't. Right. If you should be able to get over the finish line and get into the public consciousness... That will, in the end, be more beneficial to you than selling this book to the movies for seven figures. Outright. And wow. That was that was not the dispositive comment to make me agree to say yes. Right. Um, the truth was, I had read the script for the movie and I hadn't liked it. It mm. had really juvenileed the story, and there was a lot of scatology and a lot of burlesque kind of you know oh. humor that i didn't like and it was being pitched for it was being pitched for kids you know and, oh, and no i didn't like it the play the composer stephen schwartz met me and he knew that it was on my shoulders to make this decision and he explained to me why he thought it'd be a better play than a movie at least at the beginning it could be made into a movie later yeah and the thing is 
he, I have, I have the Scottish Presbyterian demeanor. You know, I look like a professor. <laughs> I've been a professor. I look like a minister. I was almost a minister. And so I just said, yes, yes. But in my heart of hearts, you know, I'm a gay man. Broadway! You know, <laughs> it's not love. Come on. But I was, I was, I listened. I listened to his thoughts. Yes, you know? yes. You and kept all that inside. All that inside. Yeah. And he said, I'm so, he got a little nervous because I wasn't betraying much. And he said, I'm so convinced that you are eventually going to see the rightness of my thinking about this that I'm going to tell you I've already conceived the first number. And it's going to be called No One Mourns the Wicked. And those five words, he sold the project to me because he convinced me with five words that he knew why I had written the book. He knew it. He got it in a way that the movie didn't get it. No one mourns the wicked. Okay, so he, I didn't tell him that. But I didn't tell him that for about a year because the lawyers had to meet. And we had to have <laughs> offers and counter offers and all. And I am absolutely. A, I'm a business person. I have to support my family and and be a good steward of my yes. own intellectual property. But I did basically. I made the decision that moment. All right. Yeah. If you if you know why I wrote this book and you care about that theme, then you can have it. I don't care about the money. I care. That the, that the idea is honored because I wrote the idea to communicate. I wrote the book to communicate something to people. And if you can help me communicate it, great. The movie wasn't going to do that. The movie might have sold a lot of more books and made me some money, but the movie wasn't going to communicate what I cared about and the reason I wrote the book. So along came the time to sign the contracts. And I said to the people drawing up the contracts, I want the composer, the lyricist, the director, to have as much liberty with my material as I had from L. Frank Baum, which is, L. Frank Baum was dead. He couldn't <laughs> complain. Right. But what he, was he didn't I, have input. I don't want to be a, a, an annoying backseat driver. Mm. If this is going to be a good play, it has to be because they have complete liberty to do with it. Now that they've convinced me that we're on, that we are starting from the same motivations, let them make of it what they will. And it will have more chance of being a good play than if I think that I know something about playwriting and I don't, I'm a novelist. So, so I basically didn't have that much to do about it. They did ask how the characters' names were pronounced. Of course. Because it's not, it's not evident necessarily. (laughs) No, that was one I didn't know until I heard it pronounced. Oh yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Really. I, I mean, my even my agent said I've never met a character like Elphaba. <laughs> oh, I made a terrible mistake. Her name, I didn't, oh. I didn't forget her name. I just right. Said, oh well, no. I'm glad you liked Elphaba. You know, it's like yeah. Elphaba, like stress on the first syllable, like Dorothy, and for that matter, like Margaret and Hamilton. You know, Elphaba, <laughs> Margaret Hamilton, All of Elphaba. Those. <laughs> So, but beyond that, I said, go, go, go to it, team. And you don't need to report to me. And I don't need to sign off on anything. Do the best you can and, and make the best, make, make the best story that you can out of this. And whatever happens to it will happen to it. And that was very lucky of me. I was about to say wise. That, that would be, again, like varnishing my, my. Well, I mean, you want, yeah, you want the halo to look nice. I mean, just give it a little polish. It's fine. Okay. It was a little wise, but the, fa- the fact of the matter is I had taken on these three children with my husband yeah. and, uh, or my partner at the time, now husband, and we had said, you know, we, they weren't accoutrements. They weren't accessories. No. You know, we, they weren't, 
to be trailing behind us at the Met Gala. You know, they were kids. Yes. needed attention. And I didn't want to be distracted mm. by the lure of Broadway or Hollywood. I wanted to be a parent. That's why I adopted them. And so they kind of kept me centered. And I said to the play people, you've convinced me your heart's in the right place. And I know you have brains and talent too. So yes. they'll go for it. And go for it. I think that was the right, I think that was the right decision. I think it worked out okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm not gonna say for sure. It feels like yeah. early days, but you I know, know. I know. I 18 years later, it's the fifth <laughs> oh. longest running play in Broadway history. So it's, I guess I made the right choice. It's tremendous. I have loved talking to you and just hearing you talk about that. I think indeed that was wisdom. I think anything that pulls you back to your center, whether you knew it or not in the moment, but to be grounded with your children, with your people. That was indeed wisdom. And I really like when you were talking in this interview, and I'll close with this, you arrest the attention of the reader just this side of drawing attention to yourself as a writer. When you were talking about tweaking language and making something funny. And what I loved about this and what I've really loved about this interview is that your books are tremendous for precisely that reason, because they are, you are, clearly a gifted writer, but the stories are their own offerings, it feels like. Uh-huh. And it's just so lovely to see these very true stories that have come from you and that point to, I think, the fact that you were meant to be a writer and who you were meant to be, but just the fact that we have these stories, I just find that is to be such a beautiful legacy that that prioritizes them in all the right ways. So I have oh, just absolutely. loved it. That's, 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 a, that's a lovely gift to give uh, to me as I suffer through jet lag. <laughs> <laughs> when, 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 I, when I drift off to sleep in about four minutes, I will be thinking of oh, what you said. And, and I appreciate that. What do we do with our lives except try to sink the bucket and bring up the best that we have to share yes. with others. And we all have different ways of doing it. Some of us are social workers. Some of us are political activists. Some of us are doctors and teachers, lawyers and librarians. Some of us sweep the streets and some of us serve the lunch at the school cafeterias. But whatever we do, we try to sink the bucket and bring up the best of what we have and share it. I don't know any other reason to do anything. Yeah. So, well, so this... if I have language and I have story, then that's what I have to spill on the table for people to say, if, anything, if you like anything here, have at it. It's for you. Oh, I love that image. I read something about picturing in film scenes, and I oh, can yeah. see like a bucket full of gems just yeah. scattered on the table and just, yeah. hey, if there's anything you like, take it. Take it yeah. with you, and it will right. comfort you later. Right. Well, exactly. thank you for these minutes, especially when you're jet lagged. I mean, that is just true love, and I will not forget it. So thank you so much for being here today. This has thank been you. really a joy. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, and I, I say that honestly, I don't always enjoy these things, but I really did enjoy it. And thank your, your child for sharing the bedroom and letting you, you say, say I will. I'm, oh, I've been trying to read the text on the, on the poster behind oh, the bed. It's, it's Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec, and it says, uh-huh. give 100%, is impossible. Uh-huh. Only idiots recommend that. <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of vibe we're working with at the Chavez house. I like it. I like it. It's like, it's, it, you, uh, my, my version of that, because my eyes couldn't yes. My version of that is, don't tell me that, you know, don't, in praising somebody else, don't tell me that they worked tirelessly. 
if they work tirelessly, then they weren't working hard enough. It's supposed to it's supposed to be tiring. Work is tiring. It's not tiring. Yes. It's tiring. You're exactly right. Tirelessly. 100% is enough. (laughs) I'm going to put that on a sticky note and put it on there. We'll add it. It'll be perfect. He'll appreciate it. Thank Thank you you so much, Gregory. Have a good afternoon. Okay. You too. Take care now. You too. Take care. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Ask a Librarian. As always, it's my joy to share and learn with you. You can follow me on Instagram at Julie Writes Words, or you can go to my website, juliewritewords.com. There you'll find the show notes, including all the books mentioned in the episode. See you in the stacks next week. And until then, friends, never go anywhere without a book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.